I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Black and Universal. My guest, E. Ethelbert Miller, is a poet and self-described literary activist at Howard University. We'll explore his playful and challenging take on the evolution of blackness in the last half century. Not the color of skin, but the color of ideas. Artistic, political, and spiritual. This is what I feel sometimes, you know, African Americans can play a key role. You, you know what it means to be an outsider. You know what it means to be oppressed. But you also know in terms of, you know, how to move beyond that. This is what people, I think, around the world look at or used to look at when they would look at jazz or blues. They would see this universality. They would say, okay, I see the hurt, the pain, but I also see the joy and hear the joy and the celebration. You know, teach me to play that music. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. E. Ethelbert Miller is a poet, self-described literary activist, and longtime director of the Afro-American Studies Resource Center at Howard University. He first went there when it was a crucible of a new kind of black identity in the 1960s. We'll explore his experience of the African-American history that has evolved ever since. In writing and in life, his voice resembles a jazz riff more than a linear narrative. At once playful and challenging, E. Ethelbert Miller pushes at the parameters within which mainstream America routinely sees what he calls blackness, artistic, political, and spiritual. We'll also hear the words and art of others, including Malcolm X, Charles Johnson, Lucille Clifton, and John Coltrane. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, Black and Universal, meeting E. Ethelbert Miller. E. Ethelbert Miller is the author of nine books of poetry and two poetically wrought memoirs. That E stands for Eugene, and this was what people called him for the first 18 years of his life. He landed at Howard University as an undergraduate in 1968, the moment in which black power was finding its voice. But he grew up in the South Bronx in a West Indian immigrant family. And as he describes it, his parents were far more immersed in that culture and more concerned with putting food on the table than with what was happening in far, far away Selma or Birmingham. Although I was saddened by the April assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., Miller has written, I did not mourn his death as something which had affected my immediate family. So when I came to Howard, um, I was sort of baptized by this black college. You know, people were wearing their afros. Um, the university had just had a major student takeover. And so it was a radical departure. You know, I remember seeing Stokely Carmichael walking across the campus. And, you know, I mean, one book that I had packed was Black Power by him and Charles Hamilton. So my afro was growing a little bit, and I was beginning to connect with that part of me that I didn't know about. As E. Ethelbert Miller describes this awakening, it was more poetic than political. Or rather, his political consciousness came to life in the fusion of arts and identity. His imagination was seized by the black arts movement, the literary and artistic expression of the black power movement. Writing and becoming a writer transformed his entire worldview. He began, he's written, to think about blackness, not the color of my skin, but the color of ideas. And so with that as a focal point, and after these four decades, I wondered where his imagination goes when he hears the phrases African-American culture or Black History Month. Well, my imagination goes in terms of how these terms have changed over the years, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. You move from being colored to Negro to black to African-American hyphen or without a hyphen, you know. Um, these are terms, I think, that for people like myself who, who were, you know, 
uh, activists also um, had certain political connotations, you know, where you would talk to somebody and say, well, that person's a Negro, you know, you put mm-hmm. that in quotes um, because of their political outlook on, on things. Uh, or, for example, you realize that you fall back on a term like black because it is a term that can embrace people of different nationalities. For example, someone who's Jamaican is going to emphasize their national identity the same way somebody who's Cuban. Right. So what happens, they may be black, but they, they're not going to say, I'm African-American because they're Jamaican. Right. Uh, we see this, for example, with, our, with, with, with Barack Obama. Barack Obama is African-American, you know, in terms truly of— you know, African-American. <laughs> Truly African-American. Truly yeah, African-American, <laughs> right. And, and you see how some people get, well, you know, he, he's a little cut off from the civil rights movement in the South. Yeah, but he's African-American. Right, you right. Know? So these terms become problematic, but at the same time, you know, like most terms or, or labels, you don't want them to exclude people or be things in which you define in such a way that you can't get out of the box again. You know, here's what I'm also interested in. I think you have such an expansive perspective on this from all your years at Howard and and what you've done, what you've created in your working life also, in your writing life. Um, I think that there are some predictable characters in the American lexicon, Um, you know, and people who you talk about as well, Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. uh, James Baldwin. Um, But I wonder who is very formative for you. I would like to know some some people, some writers, some thinkers, some activists who for you are absolutely central to the African-American experience of your lifetime. Um, but, 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 you know, but maybe aren't as, as well-known in the wider culture. Who do you wish were in that imagination more well, broadly? Well, I tell you, some of them are not African-American, but I, I would say two people. One is Charles Johnson, the novelist who lives in mm-hmm, Seattle, mm-hmm. because he is um, so extremely wide-read, you know, uh, and who is a practicing Buddhist. He's always can give me a sense of that moral, you know, compass that I, I'm trying to follow. Okay. The other person who I admire uh, is Doug Brinkley, the, the presidential historian, and I just admired a guy because of his productivity, you know. Looking back over my life, um, the Pan-Africanist and, 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 and scholar C.L.R. James is key. Um, mm-hmm. Then spiritually, I would say, because I had a chance to actually meet him, uh, and that would be Julius Nyeri, who was president of Tanzania. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would actually take his name and shorten it and, and, and give part of it to my son. Um, but mm-hmm. I was always Im- impressed by just the grace and just the spiritual aura that this man had. And so I'm very happy meeting him, you know, during my life. You know, this is it's, it's an interesting moment for us to be having this conversation because we're right about the year mark of Barack Obama's presidency. And I'd like to draw you out a little bit more. You touched on this a minute ago, mm-hmm. but how Barack Obama, just his person as well as his accomplishment, has influence the language and meaning of, of blackness? Well, you know, what happens is that we could go back and look at how many people didn't think he would be in this position, mm-hmm. you know, on white as well as black. So he's definitely, you know, surprised people in terms of his accomplishment and his achievement. I think that's it's phenomenal. But, you know, one can't go back and say, okay, because Obama is president, there's no more racism. Right. You know, because, you know, I, I feel that Obama is not necessarily the, the proper tool to measure you know, race relations. You right. See, why, why, why we use them as that? I'm It's like you know, using a ruler for the wrong as a wrong instrument. You know, measurement. So you don't buy the language of post-racial society that he represents a post-racial no. society. I I feel that what Obama shows you, and I, this is how I measure social movements. Um, I feel that Barack Obama shows you that white people have changed in the United States. Okay, white people have changed. That's that's the first. The same way, for example, if I want to measure the impact of the civil rights movement in the South, I go and I look at white people, and I look at how they might be different from their grandparents. Mm-hmm. If I want to look at the success of the women's movement uh, of the seventies, I look at the changing consciousness of men. Okay. okay? Yeah. Okay. So when I look at a, a Barack Obama, I'm looking at wow, you know. I mean, my wife is from Iowa. You know, I went out to Iowa one year after the, the Iowa primary with my daughter, and I said, Jasmine, how did he win this? <laughs> what happened here? Yeah. So, so even though, let me ask you this: even if you don't want to take Obama as uh, the center point of a discussion about race, you're saying that mm-hmm. that's, that's not the appropriate discussion to have around him. Talk to me about how you have observed the difficulty that we still have talking about race or, as you've said, talking about it or not talking about it. Well, let's look. this is the difficulty. If you look at black people, right, 
all of a sudden, Obama is ours. You know, we want Obama to have this black agenda, you know. Um, well, really, we, you know, he doesn't have to be that way. We really are not really responsible for him, his campaign being as successful as it was. What we have to realize is that we're one part of, of America, you know, okay. of people who decided that this was the person that we wanted to put in this office. You know, but what do we have to do as African-American people? We have to realize, wow, you know, there is a point in which white people will meet us halfway. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and another thing, if, for example, a policeman hits somebody upside the head in Poughkeepsie, you know, Tempe, whatever, and it's sitting in here, it's not going to set the race back. Okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm All saying? right. And is it going to set the race back if Barack Obama turns out not to be a good president? No. The same Sorry. way if, 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 if Spike Lee puts out a bad movie, mm-hmm. it's not going to set back cinematography. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yep. Well, you know, it's, it's like Jackie Robinson. Yes, you can make an error. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, we yeah. still are, in 2010, we are still looking at black people as if they represent everybody. What do you, you mean by that? that? No, what do you mean by that? Well, what happens oh, is like... you mean that you, one black person represents every black person? Everybody, okay. right. Mm-hmm. So it's like saying like, if, if Obama, you know, if, it's a bad president, we'll see, we're just not qualified. Okay. <laughs> you okay. know what I'm saying? Yeah. See, I, I'm, see, I'm a Larry Doby type of guy. I'm like, you know, the guy who integrated the American Baseball League that nobody remembers, you know what I'm saying? Because well, <laughs> everybody said, oh, Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson. Yeah, well, Larry Doby, man. <laughs> you know, you know well, I'm waiting for the, the next black president to come along and do something. You know, like maybe, maybe Obama's just John the Baptist. He isn't Jesus. He's just John on the Baptist. Okay. You got a sweet disposition. I'd like to talk about poetry. And for okay. you, I think talking about poetry doesn't mean that we stop talking about politics. Right. In fact, I mean, here's something you wrote that I, that I think uh, is, is very intriguing and, and beautiful, you know, that you said, I did not write to escape from my surroundings. I write to embrace my neighbor. Right. It is the politics of imagination which provides me with the vision of the type of world I would like to live in. Uh, in my ears, that's also a wonderfully religious or spiritual statement. Well, it is, because, you know, what I've been telling people, you have to, and this is, I think, is our responsibility, what I call language work that that writers have to do. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to change the vocabulary, you know. I I feel that if, for example, we can bring back uh, into our vocabulary the beloved community that people like, you know, Martin Luther King or John Lewis still talks about, I think that's a positive thing. If, for example, you know, words like nonviolence can become part of our vocabulary again, I think that's a positive thing. You know, what happens, certain words have just been forgotten. And so what happens is that, you know, we don't even realize the importance of what these words meant. I mean, no one talks about a a utopian society anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, even though when we look at some of the amazing things in terms of science and technology, it seems like we're, we're moving in that direction. Now, the beloved community is also um, a scriptural reference. Right. right. Mm-hmm. You're right. And and I, I think that, you know, there there are things, for example, uh, we're battling right now over the proper um, definition of jihad, you mm-hmm. see, because mm-hmm. jihad is pretty much a spiritual Right. We're very you know, mixed up in our language with Islam. That's absolutely right. true. And you have to say, okay, make room for this. This is where the language becomes necessary. If we don't use the language, we don't even see these people. Or we see them a certain way. See, the same way when we hear about somebody say, well, there's not that many black people playing baseball. You mean English-speaking black people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. You know? Right. And this is what I call language work. You know, we need to make sure that poets or fiction writers, that we interact with politicians and, 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 and others in terms of making sure that the language is always clean. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media, today black and universal. Much of E. Ethelbert Miller's own writing is essentially spiritual and with an eclectic range of influences, Muslim and Buddhist as well as Christian. All of these traditions played a part in the formation of a new kind of black consciousness in the crucible of the 1960s. Several generations of young black men in particular had already been galvanized by the Nation of Islam of Elijah Muhammad, Louis Farrakhan, and Malcolm X, 
a merger of Islamic faith with the nascent themes of black power. But in the 1960s, the black arts movement was also discovering Sufi poetry that bespoke a universalist core of Islam. In the decades that followed, the majority of African-American Muslims transitioned to orthodox, non-exclusionary Islam under the leadership of Elijah Muhammad's son. They were pointed in that direction already in 1964 by a dramatic change in Malcolm X's understanding of Islam and race after he made the Hajj, or pilgrimage, to Mecca. In the autobiography of Malcolm X that deeply influenced E. Ethelbert Miller and many others, Malcolm X reported this, I have been utterly speechless and spellbound by the graciousness I see displayed all around me by people of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans. But we were all participating in the same ritual, displaying a spirit of unity and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe never could exist between the white and the non-white. Malcolm X continued, America needs to understand Islam because this is the one religion that erases from its society the race problem. You may be shocked by these words coming from me. But on this pilgrimage, what I have seen and experienced has forced me to rearrange much of my thought patterns previously held and to toss aside some of my previous conclusions. I have always kept an open mind, which is necessary to the flexibility that must go hand in hand with every form of intelligent search for truth. Malcolm was, was able to see um, African Americans were, you know, changing with just a little bit of Islam that they were getting. And what he was looking at was, you know, the contribution of Elijah Muhammad. That even though someone would say, well, it's, you know, what Elijah Muhammad is teaching is not Orthodox Islam, you know, it's this sort of little mixture thing that he has here. But still, with that, he was able to do remarkable things in terms of lifting up, you know, African Americans. And now when you look at 2010, in which we really have a better understanding, thanks to Malcolm X and, you know, W.D. Muhammad, a better understanding of Orthodox Islam, well, that's what is really growing rapidly within our society as people enter this faith. Uh, and I think that what will be interesting to monitor is that African Americans, because we, we have grown up in the West, that we perhaps will play a key role in the Muslim world in terms of how does one balance one's faith and, and westernization. I think that's going to be really key. And to, to see in our country right now um, many African-American imams, African-Americans who are head of Islamic communities, uh, hopefully what we will also begin to see are African-American Islamic scholars who can now sit down and define, you know, various terms and things of that sort and really bring this religion into the 21st century. Yeah, that's, it is really interesting to think about it that way. And, and, and it also surprises me that Louis Farrakhan still gets all the attention from media and what he represents at this point is such a, a small sliver of African-American Islam, which, as you say, has become mainstream. So any a small sliver, but, you know, we have to look at the contributions that people have made. And even when someone polarizes a community, keep in mind that polarization is sometimes very important in terms of the, 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 the movement forward, in terms of, 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 of our lives. Mm. Do, you, do you have the poem Salat with you? Do you have that? Um, yes. I'm, I had your poems, and I was marking and turning pages, and I didn't bring them with me. So that, that one I remember the That's title. That's why we're going to get you a Kindle. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is Salad. Poetry is prayer. Light dancing inside words. Five times a day, I try to write. Step by step, I move toward the mirror. I prepare to recite what is in my heart. I recite your name. Mm. It's interesting how um, this poem, for example, I remember someone from Jordan contacted me, um, and they liked the poem. The same way in, in, in one of my books, um, How We Sleep on the Night We Don't Make Love, I have a number of poems in which I created a character by the name of Omar. Yes, um, yeah. And I created Omar because of the changing demographics. You know, mm -hmm. you walk into a school and there are more young Muslim kids who are, who are there. Yeah. And, and it's always good when, you know, a kid comes up to me, especially like in elementary school, my name is Omar, you know. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, you know, he's visible, you see, and, and he's proud. And, 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 and I found that in those poems I was using humor um, to serve as a bridge 
in terms of bringing people together and, and using these poems in such a way that if I go into a classroom, uh, a teacher can follow up my reading in terms of raising questions, you know, uh, how many of you may have Muslim friends, you know, anything about Ramadan, you know, it's a lot. And that's where the beginning of, of understanding takes place. I look at myself uh, arriving on the campus of Howard University in uh, 1968, and I had no knowledge of Islam, which was, that you know, in terms of the, the, the number of people in the world who are yeah, Muslims. Right. And in 2010, we just can't have that. There's also um, a very important, I would say, Buddhist note that recur that runs all the way through your writing and your poetry. I, you, you once wrote a little uh, essay about Langston Hughes' Buddhist smile. Yeah, <laughs> I like the like the, you know, and and you know what happens even today if you you know play some tapes of of, of Langston reading, you know, Langston like a very gentle spirit, you know, mm-hmm. and a little laugh mm-hmm. and a smile, uh, and I always say that because. Um, you know, you see that with with Langston, and, and then on the other part, you take someone like Carter G. Woodson, you know, noted for, you know, starting Negro History Week, and, and which is now Black History Month. And, and, and Carter G. Woodson's like, never smiling, like, you know, like, Black History is serious business, <laughs> serious <laughs> <Right>. business, you know. <laughs> and so I, I take, you know, Langston's smile, which to me is something which I identify in terms with the, with the poetic spirit. I, I think that there should be people that you should know their poets by their behavior. Mm. You know, they, 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 they should be these types of individuals. You know, I, I laugh a lot. You know, I'm sort of like a little laughing Buddha, I guess. You know, I'm Buddha Bert or somebody, as it could be called. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if, if you're not living your life that way, I, I think in this sense you're, you're missing the essence of life. And, and so that's the thing where, you know, you, you gravitate to these religions, hopefully that it's not simply about rituals, but we're infusing with a certain sense of, 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 of being in terms of getting you through this this life. And that's what I think it's about. And, and you know, again, and this is all really wonderful to think about in and of itself, um, but also in the context of the African-American experience um, after the 1960s and 70s. Because, again, um, with the election of Barack Obama through the campaign, African-American religiosity was a theme um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, these Buddhist and Islamic strains that are part of your formation and a part of many people's formation, I think, gets lost in the in the larger American imagination about African American spirituality. Well, this is why you know what's very interesting is that when you begin to look at the greater dialogue, you know, around religion, which and I think religion will be the the major issue of this century, not race. What you see is that. African Americans are in all. Are, we represent all these different faiths, mm-hmm. and that's extremely important. So you know, you go somewhere, you're not surprised that someone is is, is a Buddhist. You're not surprised that someone is a Muslim, uh, and and that gets away from the stereotype that we have that we think that everyone's Christian. Yeah, you see, and so this is going to be part of an ongoing dialogue, um, you know, within our community, you know, and we haven't faced it. I'm waiting to see to have these sort of real serious dialogue between African-Americans who are Christian and African-Americans who are Muslim Mm -hmm. because, you know, we we, we haven't really had that dialogue. Um, And this is what I feel sometimes, you know, African-Americans can play a key role, like, for example, in terms of the Middle East, you know, Mm -hmm. or or in areas where you, you know what it means to be an outsider. You know what it means to be oppressed. But you also know in terms of, you know, how to move beyond that. So, you know, this is what people, I think, around the world look at or used to look at when they would look at jazz or blues. They would see this universality. They would say, okay, Mm. I see the hurt, the pain, but I also see the joy and hear the joy and the celebration. You know, teach me to play that music. The novelist Charles Johnson, whom he mentioned, has written powerfully about the intrinsic kinship in his life between African-American identity and Buddhist practice. He first began a meditation practice when he was 14. In a book called Turning the Wheel, Essays on Buddhism and Writing, he writes that the historic devotion to freedom by black American leaders prepared him for embracing the Buddhist dharma as 
the most revolutionary and civilized of possible human choices, as the logical extension of King's dream of the beloved community and Du Bois' vision of what the world could be if it was really a beautiful world. Charles Johnson continues, Were it not for the Buddha Dharma, I'm convinced that, as a black American and an artist, I would not have been able to successfully negotiate my last half-century of life in this country, or at least not with a high level of creative productivity, working in a spirit of metta toward all sentient beings and selfless service to others, which in my teens were ideals I decided I valued more than anything else. The obstacles, traps, and racial minefields faced by black men in a society that has long demonized them are well documented. For me, Buddhism has always been a refuge, as it was intended to be, a place to continually refresh my spirit, stay centered and at peace, which enabled me to work joyfully and without attachment, even in the midst of turmoil swirling around me on all sides. We've put a longer passage from this piece of Charles Johnson's writing on our website, and we found ourselves collecting a rich compendium of other readings and materials that we couldn't use in this program. The verse of Langston Hughes read in his own voice, a video of President Obama's first press conference that E. Ethelbert Miller will talk about in the second half of the show, also photos of Malcolm X with Martin Luther King Jr., music from John Coltrane and Miles Davis. You can find all these resources and more on our website, speakingoffaith.org. And in addition to E. Ethelbert Miller's poem, Salat, which you heard recited earlier, he also read several other poems during our conversation. He chose a few with far-ranging themes and titles from Buddha Weeping in Winter to I Am the Land, a poem in memory of Oscar Romero. Text versions of these poems and MP3s of his readings are available for download on our website or by subscribing to our podcast. Again, all of that at speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, more of E. Ethelbert Miller's sense of the African-American place in the global present and future. Also, why baseball is the best analogy for all of these things in the end. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Black and Universal, meeting E. Ethelbert Miller. He is a poet, a self-described literary activist, and director of the Afro-American Studies Resource Center at Howard University. We're exploring his playful and challenging take on the trajectory of black history and culture of the last half century. He first found his voice through the black arts movement, which followed the themes of black power through literature and art. It only lasted formally for about a decade after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. But it was part of a larger world of art and especially music that nourished the emerging black consciousness and sustained it with a fusion of the artistic, the political, and the spiritual. John Coltrane's 1964 recording, A Love Supreme, was experienced by many as an iconic rendering of that fusion, a musical resolution of pain in an act of spiritual devotion. You named the Afro-American Studies Department magazine that you once uh, edited after John Coltrane's album Transition. Transition. And you wrote this. 
train was going where I wanted to go, the spiritual development in his last years, the pursuit of music as a way of talking to the Lord, as in dear Lord. John Coltrane was either our heart or our soul, the goodness we needed to survive the madness of winter in America. I could listen to a love supreme all night long. And the question I wanted to ask you is, what sustains and nourishes your children now, the way this oh, music Jillian. sustained and fed you? Um, is there a, a John Coltrane for them, for their generation? You, you, want, you want to say, for example, and this is a thing where we just saw, you know, the death of Michael Jackson. Mm. What happens is that because of how our technology and, and how uh, we're packaging things, it's going to be interesting how someone will emerge. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why, you know, I look at American Idol and I laugh at it because what I feel American Idol does is reward mediocrity. You're never going to hear a really great voice. You know, it buys in the whole thing that anybody could win. And that's good for ratings and sales, but not for music lovers, mm-hmm. you see. But what happens is that the way things are now, you know, we have to look in terms of where that really um, first who's taking something to another level is coming from. And that's why in my second memoir, you know, I stumble upon Ichiro's, you know, Ichiro, you know, Seattle Mariners, because I saw here with somebody almost in the age of steroid baseball and all this other stuff, mm. perfecting the game, mm. perfecting the game on almost every aspect. And when you begin to see that, you know, like somebody looks at like um, Peyton Manning, you know, that somebody is really taking what they do to a level where you thought no one could do that. Okay, mm-hmm. and we have to ask ourselves where does that occur across the board? Okay, so if, for example, we look at Barack Obama, okay, we can disagree with his policies, but we know the guy looks good as president. Man, <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, I mean, the guy looks good. You know, yeah. if you want to, if you had to sell the American, well, you know, even now when you got to do the little, you know, the, the the posters and you hate the policy, well, he, the guy looks good. Yeah, you've made this connection between. Um, you said that Barack Obama has made a connection in the American imagination between blackness and beauty. That Barack and right. Michelle Obama have done that. exactly. In fact, that's what I, I tell people that the Michelle Obamas. Uh, impact will probably be greater than any legislation that Barack Obama will pass. And why? is because she shifts the paradigm in terms of beauty. That when I saw, you know, a year ago, uh, a number of young white girls, when they were asked who the most beautiful woman in the world was, they said, you know, Michelle Obama. I said, oh, wow. Mm. This really frees up the little black girl who was in kindergarten being, being, being laughed at in terms of her color. Yeah. If now a girl with blonde hair, um, you know, this like sends everybody to the tanning room, you know, because yeah. what happened, the standard of beauty has shifted. And, and that becomes very, very important in terms of a, a race feeling good and comfortable about itself, you see. And this is why, you know, people want Obama to be successful because it is on the world stage. And this is why when you look at the inauguration, you look at the, you know, the election night, you see people crying. You know, you see Jesse Jackson. I always tell follow yeah. the tracks of Jesse's tears, you know, yeah. because what happens is that there's so much that, that you never thought could happen, and it's been kicked over, you see? Mm-hmm. But the next thing you have to ask is, what's coming after this? And, and what happens? Even Obama will show it, will shift it back to us as people that, okay, this is what we have to do. I can't do this. I'm just president of the United States. Like E. Ethelbert Miller, Lucille Clifton began her life as a poet in the late 1960s in the circles around the black arts movement. And like him, her poetry moved out from there to issues of gender and the broader human condition. Lucille Clifton won the National Book Award in 1999. Here she is reading her poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me? Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life. I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Your fusion of art and politics um, 
took you out from the black experience, as you've written, to Latin mm-hmm. America, to women writers. Um, but, you know, that also makes me think, I get back to something you said a minute ago about the way the black experience, especially in your lifetime, mm, distinctly enables you or empowers you to make a connection with other people around the world. And that's and well, that's how I was raised, you know. And mm-hmm. it took uh, it took me going off um, to college, um, you know, coming to Washington D.C., actually coming south, um, to understand that you know my father was born in Panama, you know that you know the rest of my family was from Barbados, you know that I was beginning to to, to understand that, okay. And then when I look at you know my beginnings, when I look at my elementary school, um, PS thirty nine, the, the same elementary school that Colin Powell went to, actually. Um, oh, really? Right. When I looked at that that school in the South Bronx, I look at my classes. the The level of diversity uh, was unbelievable. You know, we had many people who were Polish. We had many people who were Chinese. You know, um, African American. We were such a like a UN. In fact, uh, one of the the major uh, trans. Formations I I underwent was when I went from PS39, which was this fantastic sort of UN elementary school, mm. to Paul Lawrence Dunbar Junior High School 120, which was all African American. I, I I came home crying. You know, you know I I had never been in a school um, in terms of, of all black kids running around things of that sort. You know, uh, and I was I was really isolated and, and, and traumatized actually. Mm. You know, because I came from a place in which you know many of my friends were were were, were actually not African American. They were Puerto Rican. They were Chinese. You know, and so those individuals, those friendships, I think, you know, molded me. And so as I got older and living in parts of D.C., you know, like Adams Morgan and Mount Pleasant, you know, I I immediately gravitated, you know, to people from Nicaragua, Guatemala, you know, um, because that was what I was uh, accustomed to. You wrote somewhere that um, what is black history? but a series of coincidences that run parallel to everything in the universe. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, if, 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 if we look at what happens, you know, to the black experience, you know, we, we seem like, you know, as writers, as artists, and this is why you have certain African-American artists, they, they try to, you know, move beyond the label. Well, don't label me as an African-American artist. I'm an artist, you know. And, you know, we, and we get stuck in that. You know, my thing is that if you're black, you're universal. You know, that's why, <laughs> you know, I, I, I said, you know, we're all black poets at night. You know, you turn the lights on everybody black you know um and and this is you know once again is this how i approach blackness that is it's celebratory you know that is something that we embrace it is not a burden you see Mm -hmm. you know it's something that i don't want to move away from i want to move closer to and in the process of that um and it will find me at times at odd with people who might define themselves as black nationalists because i feel that after you go through this whole thing of who you know who you are which is wonderful and if you, if you want to trace yourself back you know to kings or the pyramids or whatever that's nice but then it's very important that you turn away from this narcissistic mirror and you begin to look out the window and you begin to realize there are other people out there with different histories different mythologies and and that your job now is to enter out into the world um, your history, your your ideas is is a gift, and you're also in a position where you receive the gift of other people's culture, mm. and, and and that's the exchange. You see, that's mm-hmm. the exchange, and that's the thing that you know we're beginning to see now in 2010. African Americans are just moving around the world. They're realizing, okay, you know, they are there, they belong. You know, I look at how trapped I was the first time I went to Norway. You know, how uh, trapped? What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, trapped in terms of people say, "Oh man, you know, you're going out there. You're not gonna see it. You know, it's just it's all, the country's all white." You know, what right? I mean? <laughs> and I, I get see. off the plane, and you know, you're going through customs, and the first person who welcomes me to Norway is a black woman. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it's a black woman, you know. Yeah, and yeah. as I walked around Oslo, it was a very, you know, very um, a multicultural city, you know. But what happened? I was walking around thinking everybody was going to be a Viking, right. you know. Right. Uh, and 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 then the other thing which I've always looked at is that if I'm a young white kid, I can, you know, you know, go anywhere and, and no one's, you know, say, oh, what are you doing here? But until you're a black person, you show up in like, you know, Wyoming, you know, it's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm hiking. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, all of a sudden mm-hmm. we have to explain our presence, you see? Uh, and, and that is something I feel is a problem that, you know, we are still locked in. Or as black people, we don't want to go certain places. 
because, you know, we don't want to be the only black person there. How will we be perceived? That's why sometimes those of us who are very cautious, you know, we go somewhere. Oh, there's another black person. Okay. All right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no matter how old you get, you're still dealing with these little moments in which you're not certain about something. You know, one of the most beautiful moments of the Obama administration was his first press um, meeting where he comes into the room to meet the press and they all rise up. He jumps for a little second. He's like, whoa, I'm president. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you, know like, you know, like all of a sudden it was, you know, it, was, it, it, it caught him. You're like, whoa, mm. you're president, you mm. know. And, and, and that's a, those are very small things that, you know, you realize, OK, he's still thinking this. Yeah. And when, what about the rest of us who haven't had these experiences, you know? And, and this is the thing I feel that at the end of the day, if we are celebrating, you know, who we are as black people, we have to realize that it's healthy to be black. You know, it's beautiful to be black. And it's one of many colors out here. And, and, and we have to make sure that we don't abuse it. That, you know, we're always polishing ourselves, mm. you know, and not because we want to, you know, try to impress somebody. But the fact that this is what we do. This is the tradition um, that's been passed on. This is our legacy. You know, mm. I tell people, you know, if you're not going to work as hard as the boys or Garvey, you know, I always tell people, what happened? You imagine if these people had laptops, you know? <laughs> I mean, they were productive. Or the work habits of Booker T. Washington. That's your tradition. See, I remember Wynton Marcellus saying, you know, you know, I dress up a certain way because I respect the music. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Black and Universal. We're exploring E. Ethelbert Miller's experiential and literary lens on black history in the last half century. In 2009, he published his second memoir, which he called A Riff on Middle Age, Marriage, Fatherhood, and Failure, entitled The Fifth Inning. He writes, In baseball, the fifth inning can represent a complete game. The structure of this book consists of balls and strikes. Balls and strikes can also stand for BS. How much is thrown at a person by the time they reach 50? When BS becomes just B, it might represent not balls, but the blues. The blues seen as departure and loss. The B also stands for blackness, perhaps the essence of the blues. So, you know, when you look at your children and their friends, um, how did they make you think uh, and feel about the up-and-coming generation? Well, you know, I felt there were things in both my son and my daughter's life that I think helped them become who they were. Uh, I looked at my my daughter. I had her in a um, program called Operation Understanding, which is a wonderful organization that brings blacks and and Jewish young people together, and they, you know, they, they mm. learn from each other. And, and that has been a really unique experience for her that she was able, years later, to always draw back on, you mm. know, that sort of friendship. I looked at my son in terms of, you know, when you go through sports and you're really excelling and, and, and you see some of your friends, you know, making it to the NBA, you know, what happens, you begin to understand exactly how good you are, you know, you understand what it takes to win, and you understand who you are off the court. Hmm. You say mm-hmm. off the court, and and that's the thing where we say we use sports in such a way to bring out the character in a young person. You know, we use the sports in such a way to give that person the 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 discipline and the thing that there are rewards that yet that okay you did such and such, and that's why you have a trophy. Right. You know, we've touched on so many places. I um. I wonder if there's any place we haven't gone, something that you'd really like to talk about, maybe something that's new that you've been thinking. Well, the, the thing that I, I feel I, I sort of tried to approach in my last book, um, The Fifth Inning, mm-hmm. was to, to look at issues of depression, you know, yeah. and, and how that, I think, is very important in terms of working your way through that so that you can celebrate life. You know, I, I, I have friends who have problems getting out of bed, you know, um, I've had a number of friends who have, um, you know, committed suicide. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I'm, I'm very concerned about that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what the symptoms are. Um, you know, just making sure that if you're ever in a situation, you know, you might be able to 
um, give advice that can be life-saving. Yeah, and I, I think part of your integrity as a as a person and as a writer that other people have noted in you is that you you do talk about the breadth of your experience, and it's not all light. There's there's darkness. There's depression. Right. Um, and that's what ties back to baseball. You know, you and your your success. You just get three hits every ten times you get up. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? What was the last? One of the last lines of the fifth inning is "All I know is baseball." Is All right? I know is baseball, right? Yeah, you know, and you know, basically, you could say that's almost like a Buddhist thing, where you know, what do you know? You say, and, and sometimes it gets down to something very simple. You know, um, where you know you travel the entire world, and the only thing you really know is your home. You've seen all, you know, I mean, that's it. Or the only thing you know is your heart. Basically, like, why I like the sport, especially baseball, you know, one level is very exact, and, and, and um, you never know what's going to happen to the last out, you know. And as I tell people, it's one of the games that begins and ends at home. You know, <laughs> okay. it, represents, right. it represents that journey, you know. Not too many, you know, games are like that. Mm. Yeah. You wrote... Um, naming ourselves is what many of us did in the late 60s. Oh, yeah, we took the, African yeah. names and Muslim right. names and names we created like musical improvisations. And Naming is also so resonant for me with, uh, you know, it is the original creative act. And that was the most difficult job I ever had was, was naming my children. Mm. Say so that was that was really, you know, um, you know what, what am I going to name my child? What is their nickname going to be? You know, are they going to grow out of their name or grow into their name? You know, and and I I look at my my daughter. Her name is Jasmine Simone. Yes. You know, and that that seems to work. And she's still Jasmine. She hasn't called that Jasmine Simone. I I keep pushing that Simone because that gives you that sort of <laughs> Nina Simone, you know, backbone. Yeah. Uh, and then my son surprised me because um, you know, his name is Nayir Gibran. I come, took Jewish Nayiri's name and merged it with with the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. And he, he's never used the Gibran, but, you know, now he sent me a little text and he was like, Gibran. I said, what's this? You know, Mr. G, you know. Well, but, they're you know, just doing what you did. Right. And, and choosing and, you know, their names. Choosing their name and something that they that you look up and, and it may not resonate right now or they might abbreviate it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's very important in terms of, especially in this world, you know, branding, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, that's a thing where... I might begin another book because um, upon discovering that my last name is probably not Miller, that's another story (laughs) (laughs) that my sister said, did you know this could be our last name? It's not Miller, you know. And so um, the naming process is key. Mm -hmm. And that has been the case with many immigrants coming into this country, that they assume another name. And that was probably the situation with in terms of my father. So that's another book to write about. Okay. Well, some, it's been said that your uh, memoirs are written a bit like jazz riffs, and I think this conversation's been a bit like one, but it's oh, great. Yeah, right, it's yeah, been right, a lot of fun. Right. All right, stay well. Ethelbert Miller is director of the Afro-American Studies Resource Center at Howard University. His books of poetry include How We Sleep on the Nights We Don't Make Love. His memoirs are Fathering Words and The Fifth Inning. And we'll end with some of the closing lines of a speech he once gave, titled My Language, My Imagination, The Politics of Poetry. He said this, What I have learned from the black arts movement is that all things eventually point towards truth and justice. Years ago, the black arts movement gave me the power to see the beauty of my blackness. Today, I must not be blinded by race, but instead my political imagination must be open to understand the differences I have with others. I must be strong enough to construct cultural bridges. What is poetry but that which we feel most deeply? What is poetry but that which tells our soul to sing? You can find the full text of this beautiful speech by E. Ethelbert Miller, as well as Lucille Clifton's poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me, on our website. 
While at speakingoffaith.org, take advantage of all the extra audio we offer, including MP3s of this program, my unedited interview with E. Ethelbert Miller, and the SOF playlist, which allows you to stream all the tracks of music you heard in this program. Songs by John Coltrane, Nina Simone, Miles Davis, and Wynton Marsalis. Also, some of our richest ideas and most engaging conversations are taking root online through our blog, SOF Observed, and on our Facebook fan page, even Twitter. We recently streamed live video of my public conversation with the Evolution of God author Robert Wright. We'll be turning that into a radio program in a few weeks. He's an interesting voice charting a new way forward in our public understanding of the interplay between science and religion, faith and reason. That is one of my favorite topics, and I'm excited to have a new book coming out in paperback this month called Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit. Learn more about all of this and find ways to join others in meaningful discussion about every aspect of life at speakingoffaith.org. Speaking of Faith is produced by Colleen Scheck, Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Shuba Bala. Our producer and editor of All Things Online is Trent Gillis with Andrew Dayton. Special thanks this week to Desiree Cooper, the Poetry Foundation, and Copper Canyon Press. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at FordFound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, no more taking sides, an Israeli-Palestinian story that defies headlines of despair. Please join us. American Public Media 